I wonder if you've ever had an agenda or a plan interrupted. I wonder whether you've ever been through one of those situations where you know what was going to happen because you'd sorted it in your mind. You had the plan all laid out. You knew what was going to be going on, maybe in your day, maybe in your week, maybe in your life. And then suddenly, a heading was changed. The agenda was interrupted. The plan was disrupted. And you had to head in a different direction. I don't know whether you saw it last week, a new series started on BBC on a Sunday evening, it's on iPlayer as well, called The Gold. I don't know if anybody saw that, but it's telling the story of what happened after one of the most famous robberies in history, certainly in this country, the Brinks Matt Gold robbery, where a whole bunch of people turned up at a storage depot near Heathrow Airport expecting to steal about a million pounds in foreign currency and actually ended up with 27 million pounds worth of gold bullion. That was certainly an interrupted plan. And then the whole thing of this series is going to be what they did to try and get rid of the gold afterwards, because apparently it's not just as simple as going down to the market and flogging it. It's going to be the whole basis of the series, a pretty dramatic change in an agenda or a plan. Maybe something in your life changed. Maybe you had a plan and you had an agenda. Maybe those exam results weren't quite what you were hoping for or you were expecting. Maybe that person upped and walked out on you. Maybe you were offered a new opportunity, maybe even in a different part of the world. Maybe for you, your plan or your agenda for your life was interrupted that day in the doctor's consulting room. Or maybe you heard about something, you heard somebody talking about something and it so inspired you that you were inspired to make a change. You know, I grew up in church and to be honest, I had an agenda for my life and a plan for how it was all going to go that included church, but where church was going to be a bolt on to my life. My plan, my agenda was probably that church was going to be something I was involved in but not sold out on. Something I attended, but was never really fully engaged. My plan was to give God a slice of my life, but not the whole of my life. But then I heard one day somebody explaining what church was really supposed to be about, painting this picture of what God has in mind when he thinks about the church. And I was ruined. And my life changed that day, literally changed. In two days it was. My life literally changed. I was captivated. I was in awe. Something inside of me moved that day. I wondered why nobody had ever told me about this before. Through all those years where I'd been growing up in church, my plan for my life, my plan for my life, my agenda was never going to be enough now. Nowhere near enough. You know, throughout this series that we called Stop Going to Church, we've been trying to paint that kind of picture, to paint that kind of picture of what God thinks when God thinks about this thing called the church. We've been attempting to captivate your hearts, to captivate your hearts with what God has to say, to leave us all in awe of this amazing thing. And if you're not a Christian, if you're exploring faith, you're so, so welcome with us at Andover Baptist Church. We long to be a community where people, no matter where they are on their spiritual journey, can find help and support and they'd be equipped 
to take a next step in their journey of faith. And, and if you're not a Christian, if you're exploring faith, it's so great to have you here. And we hope through this series you'll get an idea of what God thinks about this thing that you're becoming connected to and involved in, or maybe here for the very first time. And maybe you'll hear for the very first time what God has to say about this thing called the church. And if you're a Christian, make no bones about it. If you've been a part of church for a while, make no bones about it. We are casting a vision through this series of what is on God's heart for this thing that you've been a part of for a while. And unapologetically saying, this is worth being ruined over. This is worth being sold out to. This is worth considering not something to be a bolt onto your life, but actually something that is worth the investment of your life. And so far we've talked about three different metaphors or images for the church. We said when God thinks about the church, he's thinking about the church as a body. We said God thinks about the church as like a bride, the bride of Jesus. And last week we talked about God thinking about the church as a family. And today we finish by presenting the image of someone holding the door open for others to come and see. We're talking today about this metaphor, this image of witness, being a witness to something. We say when God thinks about the church, he thinks about it being a witness to something. And to help me today to explain what I mean by all of that, and to hopefully cast this vision for what God has in mind when he thinks about the church, I want to go to a guy called Luke. And Luke wrote two books that are in the New Testament part of the Bible. And uh, he wrote, the first book was called Luke, and the second book was called Acts. And Luke was a doctor, and he was a friend of Paul, another one of Jesus' first followers. And Paul was the author of many of the other books in the New Testament part of the Bible. And when you turn to the Bible, you need to understand that the Bible is actually made up of different books with different types of writing. There is poetry and prophecy and letters, and there is law, and then there is history too. And Luke writes history, and we need to approach it and read it as such. This is history that we're reading, and Luke actually was an excellent historian, we haven't got time this morning to go into all the reasons why that can be true and why we can trust Luke's record as historical accuracies, but there are plenty of reasons. And over and over and over again, from both books, Luke and Acts, we can see historical reality be play, being played out and his historical details that he tells us about settings and places and locations being spot on. And so Luke is a reliable historian. And at the begin very beginning of this second book, this book called Acts in the New Testament, at the very beginning of this second book, uh, Luke says this. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, Luke is writing, and in fact, writing both of his books with this person, Theophilus, in mind. There's some debate about who this person actually was, but the likelihood is that Theophilus was a Roman kind of um, uh, citizen, but also some sort of political mover or shaker. He had some kind of official role, Theophilus. And the likelihood is that he uh, asked Luke 
and maybe even commissioned Luke to write these accounts because he was, had either just become a follower of Jesus or was thinking about being a follower of Jesus. And the cost to him for doing that was going to be big. Because in those days, becoming a, a follower of Jesus was not always a safe thing to do, particularly if you're in some kind of official position. So he kind of wants to know, we think, that this was really all true and what it was really all about. Because he was saying, look, if I'm going to give my life to this and actually could literally have been his life, I want to know that this is real. So we think he commissioned Luke to write both of these books. So again, he's writing to Theophilus, but thankfully we have this. So it's kind of like he's writing to us too. Now, Luke's first book, which he references here, was about the life and ministry of Jesus, including the death and resurrection of Jesus. This second book, we start to get a hint here, is going to be slightly different. If Luke's first volume was going to describe all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, we can assume that this second book, this second volume, is going to describe what uh, he continued to do and teach through his spirit after he'd been back to be with his heavenly father. But before Jesus went back to be with God, Luke says he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to his apostles, his followers. Because as we can see here, and this word began is intriguing here, you can see the story of the earthly life of Jesus was just the beginning. I love this. I love that the Christian faith does not end... And Jesus' earthly life, his time on earth, comes to an end. I love that the story of Jesus isn't done yet. When Jesus was on earth, it was just the beginning of what he would do. And now through his spirit, his presence, there is more to be done. The story of Jesus isn't done yet. And through this, these, just these first couple of verses in Acts chapter 1 we get to be introduced to the key theme of the book of Acts and a key player in the origins of the church. Because we're told the theme is about being on a mission from Jesus. And the key player is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, who's going to enable that mission to carry on after Jesus' earthly life and ministry has come to an end. We read on. After his, that is Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He peered to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. This is really important. After his suffering means Jesus' death on the cross, the cross where he died. But after his suffering, he rose again and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Luke's reports... Uh, Luke reports to us that Jesus' appearances were proof of his resurrection. And Jesus appeared to many people over a long period of time so that this fact of Jesus' resurrection could be tested and affirmed. An author called Arjith Fernando commenting on these verses or remarking on these verses says this the objective reality of the resurrection was the ultimate proof of the amazing claims that the apostles were to make about Jesus 
So the claims that those first followers of Jesus were going to make about him was rooted in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And this fact that Jesus rose from the dead is absolutely key to the foundation of the church. Without the resurrection of Jesus, he was just another religious teacher and just another guy who died on a cross. But with the resurrection, there is a weight that comes. His mission comes with the weight of a resurrected saviour. With the resurrection, everything changes. He is way more than a religious teacher. He's the son of God. And the mission that he gives carries an authority that resonates through the ages and is a call to any Jesus follower. And this, by the way, is not just the foundation of the church. It's the foundation of the Christian faith. If anyone ever asks you, if you are a Jesus follower, if you'd call yourself a Christian, if anybody ever asks you why you're a Christian, I would encourage you that the very first place you should go to is the resurrection of Jesus. That's why I'm a Christian. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And if somebody rises from the dead, that's proof of the claims that they make about themselves. You know, so many people want to have so many arguments so much of the time about the Christian faith, and they'll always start, and this is what I've noticed, they'll always start with one of those Old Testament stories that are quite difficult to get your head around. And that's where they'll always go, and they'll say, so what about the way the world was created? What about a worldwide flood? What about whatever? What about whatever? What about whatever? And I always want to say, here's the best reply to that sort of question. Well, we can talk about that if you like. And that'll be great fun to talk about, and we can debate that if you want to. But I just need to tell you, none of that is the reason why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because Jesus rose from the dead. And that means we can trust the things he said about himself. And he said, I'm the son of God, and I made a way for you to be free, and a way for you to be in relationship with me. I have or had... Uh, a member of my family, uh, sadly, um, uh, because of all sorts of situations, is no longer a member of my family. That sounds awful. Uh, I'm going to explain that another time. But he and I used to enter into lots of debates together about the Christian faith. And uh, we used to have all these arguments and conversations, and it was great fun. He's a really bright guy and uh, um, a philosopher and all sorts of that, but, but pretty anti-religion, pretty anti-Christianity. And uh, for a while, we used to write these letters to each other that we used to swap at Christmas. And they became known as the Christmas epistles. And we used to swap these Christmas epistles. And he used to argue this way, and i try and respond, and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, I, I said to him, look, we can carry on this conversation if you want to. But I think the biggest question you have to answer if you're going to stick to your position is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with this historical figure who died on a cross and who the evidence points to rising from the dead? Because that's ultimately the reason why I believe what I believe. And this is really important that we hear this from Luke. Luke is saying that Jesus didn't just appear once, one time in one place, resurrected from the dead. 
He appeared over and over and over again over a period of 40 days in different places on different occasions to different people. You know, if you want to dismiss Christianity, well, fair enough, you can do that. But to do that, you've got to dismiss the resurrection of Jesus. And that is a really hard thing to do, to dismiss it. Let's go on. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. We're just going to roll on. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. On one occasion, Luke says, so Luke picks one of these occasions where Jesus appeared to his followers to unpack a little bit. On one of those occasions, Jesus said to his followers, wait, wait in Jerusalem because I've got a gift to give to you. A gift promised by his father, this gift of the Holy Spirit, which was to be the power and presence of Jesus once he had left them. And this was why Jesus' earthly life was just the beginning. Because his power and presence was going to be with them through this gift beyond this moment. And this phrase about being baptized in the Spirit has sometimes been the source of some controversy amongst Christians. What exactly does that mean? And there are some debates about that. And I don't think, in my simple way, that we need to overcomplicate or overthink this too much. To be baptized means to be immersed or be washed in or have a significant experience of. So when we're talking here about being baptized with this power and presence of God, it's having a significant experience or being immersed in the presence of God. The point Luke is making here is that in order to be effective followers of Jesus, they need to be immersed in and experiencing the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And if we're to be effective followers of Jesus, we need the same thing. But through all of this, even through all of this, Jesus' followers have an agenda and a plan. They have an agenda and a plan for their lives and for the mission that they think Jesus is calling them to. So they head off down a little bit of a tangent. Look at this in verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had spent his time and uh, teaching with them, talking about the kingdom of God. But they'd confused that with a political and territorial kingdom. And this was their plan and their agenda. Their plan and their agenda was that there should be a restoration of something that had gone before, was that the um, ruling authorities and armies of the day should be kicked out. And there should be a restoration of a political and geographical kingdom. That was their plan and their agenda. And there have been times in the history of the church, sad times, where Jesus' followers have made the same mistake. They've confused the kingdom of God with a political or territorial agenda. And the kingdom of God is way more than that. It transcends territorial boundaries. It transcends political boundaries. And Jesus is going to challenge them to stop spending their time speculating on what the future will be. Stop spending their time speculating on their agenda and their plan. And instead, start giving their time to his 
mission. He says this. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know what's going to happen in all of these matters. Instead, Jesus challenges them to get their heads into the game of the mission that he is calling them to. Look at this, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, this is my agenda and my plan for you. So forget all that other stuff. My agenda and my plan is that you're going to receive power from this gift of the Holy Spirit. And power for what? Well, power to be my witnesses. To be carriers of the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. This is the mission that Jesus gives to them. To go out and to be witnesses to share what they have seen and what they know. The difference that knowing Jesus has made to their lives, both now in the present and for all eternity. What they have witnessed, many of them with their own eyes, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this mission to be his witnesses is the birth of the church. And this call to be witnesses is one of the very last things Jesus says to them. What does it mean to be a witness? To be honest, I don't think that sounds very inviting, does it? It doesn't sound terribly exciting. The original word in the Greek in which this was written was the word martyrs, from which we get the word martyr. Now, that definitely doesn't sound like much fun to me anymore. But the word in Greek could mean witness in a legal sense. Like somebody maybe who'd witnessed a crime It could also mean a spectator and an event, or it could mean something else. It could mean someone who honorably forfeits their own comfort and success for a cause. Somebody totally committed to that cause. You know, we think oftentimes, don't we, of a martyr being somebody who dies for something. Well, it can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It can just mean somebody totally committed to a cause. And I think when Jesus says this and sets this mission out for his first followers to be his witnesses, I think he's thinking about elements of all three when he speaks to them. I think there's an element of all three meanings in what Jesus is saying. The followers of Jesus were witnesses to the event of his death and resurrection. They could give testimony to what they had witnessed. But Jesus was also calling them to lay down their own success and their own comfort for the sake of his cause. It was letting people know what Jesus had done. And there was being totally committed to that. You know, I think all of this is so, so important. I think it's so, so important that we understand the origins and the beginnings of the church that it's founded on an event, the resurrection of Jesus, and that we have eyewitness accounts of that event, and that the church is built on, if it's founded on the resurrection of Jesus, it's built on the actions of those throughout centuries who have been empowered by the Spirit of God, who have submitted their agendas to the agenda of Jesus, and who have carried on his mission to everyone everywhere. Those who have held the door open 
and said, come and see who this Jesus is and what he has done. And I think this is so important for those of us who have been around church for a while, because our natural tendency is to do what I call slipping into club or institution mode, where our churches become clubs or institutions. And I think there are some warning signs to look out for that we might be slipping into that mode. For example, these sorts of things. When we start becoming more concerned with what we like than with what facilitates the mission. When we start arguing about what I would call secondary theological things at the expense of the mission. When we get legalistic and maybe like some of those first religious leaders, the Pharisees, in trying to call everybody out on everything. When we find it hard to sacrifice our resources or our preferences for the sake of the lost, the lonely and the hurting, we're slipping into club or institution mode. When we start doing what these followers of Jesus very nearly did, so if we'd read on in that passage, we'd have found a moment where Jesus is taken back to be with his Father in heaven and they all stand around looking up at the sky, wondering where Jesus is. And some angels appear to them and say, stop looking up into the sky and start getting on with the work. And I think sometimes maybe God would say that to us. Stop looking up into the sky. Start getting on with the mission of Jesus. And we need to make no mistake, the mission of Jesus doesn't happen without sacrifice. When I read the stories in the Bible, the story of God, of people living out the mission of Jesus, I find it impossible to find any that aren't without sacrifice. See, sacrifice and mission are interconnected. And of course, the ultimate example of that is Jesus himself. The mission of extending God's love to us when we were lost and lonely and hurting, when we are lost and lonely and hurting, was so important to God and so important to Jesus that Jesus made the sacrifice, not staying with his Father in heaven where it was comfortable, but instead coming to walk in the muck and the grime and the fallenness of humanity. Do you see what you see going on there? When passion for the mission overcomes the desire for comfort and safety, the world changes. Because the world changed that day Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come to earth. When our passion for the mission of Jesus, fueled by the spirit of Jesus, is greater than our desire for our own agendas or our own plans, then the church begins to become all that God desires for it to be. And the world changes. And when a local is working in that way, there's nothing like it. Absolutely nothing like it. And I am so grateful and so thankful to be part of this community where so many of you are doing just that. Where many of you submitted your own preferences and plans to the mission that God is calling us into. When you do that, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I love being part of a church where so many of us are partnering in this call of Jesus. And when you partner, I think God is cheering you on when you do that. And maybe through this series, God is challenging you to take the next steps of partnering with us at ABC in this mission that God has given to us. 
And we would love to equip you to do just that, to take your next step of partnership. Because as you do that, make no mistake, the world changes. There is no mission without sacrifice. Jesus made the ultimate one. And he calls us to play our part, to take our next steps in sacrificing for the sake of the mission. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your church. We thank you that this was so important to you. You gave everything. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth to walk amongst us, to die and then to rise again. We thank you for the reality of that. We thank you that that is the event that changed history, the event upon which this amazing thing called the church was founded. Lord, call us once again, we pray, to play our part, taking our next steps so that this amazing thing called the church can be all that you intend and desire for it to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>